0: Well, let's remain standing for prayer, shall we? Oh, Father, what a wonderful and worthy Lord Jesus we have. Thank you that he was willing to humble himself and take on the form of a servant and become obedient even to the point of death where he substituted into our place, taking our sin upon himself, going to the cross and sparing us that kind of judgment. And in fact, privileging us with the right to become children, your children, Father, thank you for this practice, this routine in our week where when the week is just a few hours old, we gather, we sing, we pray, we preach. Now it's time to preach. May you bless it to our hearts and our minds. Use it to transform us and conform us into the image of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. I want us to begin our sermon this morning time um, by taking a walk down to the river. Um, This is in your mind's eye, you know. Um, It's really kind of a strange scene that we encounter. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5 because we're going to run to read a few of the verses here. But let me just kind of tell you what's been going on and why there's a group of people down alongside the Jordan River. It's a strange setting because if you look closely, you can see that there's a key player. He's a big man. He's a strong man. In fact, we know from the text that he was a high-ranking military official in the Syrian army. And he was stepping into the water of the Jordan River. Let me tell you why they are there. There's a whole group of people gathered around watching. We know this man's name. His name is Naaman. Naaman, Naaman as I said, is out of the country of Syria. He is there, a high ranking official. He works closely with his king. They're a powerful nation at this time. In fact, they're enemies of Israel. Naaman is a very important man. He's used to, in fact, he's used to giving orders. He's not used to taking orders. I want to tell you what happened, though. Um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it came about, but um, I think it must have happened on a morning. He rose one morning, and he began to prepare about his day, and... He evidently looked at his skin, and he saw a white blotch. It gave him a bad feeling. He looked at it, but being a man, a big, strong man, he decided that it was nothing. I imagine this progressed, and he began to notice other parts of his body taking on white blotches. Eventually, he needed to step into the kitchen and speak to his wife one morning at breakfast time and he said, I want to tell you that I think I have leprosy. I think the tears spilled out of her eyes. Why do you think this? He showed her the white blotches that were becoming more noticeable. A part of the story that's very important is that listening in the house there, perhaps in the very room where they were, was a young girl. Now, what's interesting about this young girl is that she was an Israelite girl. Somewhere along the line, on his military forays into Israel, they had captured and taken a community, a village, a section. They had looted it, they had taken the goods, and in the looting and destruction and chaos of the war there, he had evidently encountered this... Young girl. She must have been noticeable. He must have thought, What a beautiful young girl, what a precious young girl. I think that I should take her home to my wife and she can become a, a helper, a maid to my wife and be of great benefit around the house. And so that's what they did. He took this little girl home to Syria from Israel and she served his wife as her mistress. She had noticed the countenance, she had noticed the tears, she had noticed the concern. She must have been a spunky little girl because she spoke up. There they are discussing, and you need to know that this leprosy is horrible. It is it is the deadly cancer of the day. It is a, a skin-rotting disease, it is highly contagious. He must have put off admitting that it was real for some time then he had to show his wife then he had to begin to make plans what are we going to do how are we going to respond to this because basically you had to go into isolation you needed to get away from people so they had to work out some kind of system where they would live separately and somehow he would do his best to get along until his skin literally fell off his bones and he died of infection Little girl spoke up. I have an idea for you, sir. If you would go back to my country, there is a man there. He is a prophet of God and he can heal you. Huh. How do you think a big military commander speaking to his wife in his house, having a little girl pipe up? And do you know what? He did. I think it was kind of like when you're into oils and holistic and it's like, well, did you try this one? No, I didn't try. Well, this one, listen, I put it in my radiator and it fixed my car. If you take a little bit of this, it'll fix you, guaranteed. And so what do we do when we're desperate? When we're desperate, we try anything. And this little girl spoke up and said, go talk to this prophet of God. Well, you need to know that in the story, what he did was he wrote a letter. He had his boss, the king of Syria, write a letter to the king of Israel asking for permission to go seek out this prophet and letting him know that my, one, my number one general is going to be entering your country. It's not a war situation. The king of Israel melts down because he thinks that it's a surprise attack. And Elisha, being the man that he was, figures out that the king is distressed I don't even think he was around the king. He just woke up one day and he knew in his heart the king was distressed. He goes, he tells the king, just tell him to come. The man comes to see Elisha and Elisha won't go out and see him and greet him. That's pretty offensive. He's an important guy. He's a military commander. He comes to the prophet of God's house. The prophet of God won't even come and show his face. It really ticks him off. Instead, he sends message out with, with his servant and he says, here's what you do. Go down to the Jordan River and dunk in the river seven times. If you've been around church world any time at all, you know this story. It's a wonderful story of God's power on display. It's also like the Ninevites, a demonstration, by the way, of God seeking Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. Do what? Go down to the Jordan River, Naaman says, and dunk seven times in that muddy river? I've got at least two rivers near my home in Syria that are beautiful, crystal-clear water springs. If I want to go dunk in a river, I'm going to go dunk in one of those rivers. And so he's really mad. He doesn't want to do it. And his servant staff care about him enough that they begin to lobby for the plan, and they say, sir... It won't hurt anything. Well, it? just go down and dunk in the river. And so we find ourselves along the Jordan River at the beginning of our message time today. And there they are, this strange-looking group of people. It's an entourage of servants and personnel staff. And their commanding officer, evidently being a mature man, I would think, didn't want to expose even his bare back or his bulging belly. He's dressed fully, stepping down into the river, mumbling under his breath thinking this is absolutely ridiculous. Do it. Just do it. Give it a try. He gets out. Maybe I picture waist-deep water or so, and he kind of, no, deeper, deeper. You didn't get your head wet. He steps out a little deeper, and once, and twice, and seven times, down into the water, up. The water runs off. He breathes, holds his breath. Down he goes. Let's pick it up at verse... 14 of chapter 5 of 2nd Kings, and let's see what's, what the text says happens. So he went down, verse 14, 2nd Kings 5, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Isn't that a great verse? You see the power of God on display? It also reminds us that in the Bible, leprosy is always a type of sin. It reminds us of another place where we go and get dunked. That's the, the flow at the cross, the blood of Christ, that, that, that cleansing fountain, right? There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flow. That's where we get forgiveness. It's a picture, isn't it, And And what a day, some of you have that kind of testimony where you went to the cross and you went there dirty and broken and sin-rotting, skin disease of leprosy, of sin, and, and the blood of Christ cleansed you pure and clean. Praise God. What a reminder of the grace of God and the mercy of God. Well, it's kind of interesting what happened next. You can imagine that this is the greatest day in this man's life. He looks down. The white splotches are gone. The staff are rejoicing. We told you it was worth a try. Up they come out of the water. Off they go. And then verse 15 says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Amen. So accept now a present from your servant. So this time Elisha does come out on the porch and talks to him. He wants to give him gifts. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Elisha says to him, there's no way I'm not taking a gift from you. This was God at work in you. It's nothing to do with me. It's God's power. I'm not taking a gift for that which God did. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman ref- urged Elisha to take the gift, but Elisha refused. refused. There's a couple of verses that are kind of strange then in the story. Naaman realizes that Elisha's not going to take his gift. So then he says, well, how about this? I would like to take my shovel and shovel up a couple of bushel baskets full of topsoil from right here in Israel. I'm going to take them back with me on my mule to Syria. And you need to know my king calls on me to worship in the temple there. And I know now that there's no God, but the God of Israel. I want to take that dirt. I'm going to sneak it in the temple, dump it on the ground. Because when my king calls on me to worship next to him, I will bow down next to him. But I will be on soil from Israel. And I will remember there is no God, but the God of Israel. He does. The king, he's the king doesn't really need to know all this stuff. But is that OK, Elisha? Elisha says, perfect. Be on your way. Do it. It's kind of Interesting. Well, what you need to know now, and this is the point of the introduction, the long story here that sets the stage for our sermon, observing all of this is Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Our topic today is an important topic. As we continue our study in the book of Proverbs, we are going to talk today about this matter of personal integrity. What I want us to do now for the next few minutes is finish the story of Naaman, how it ends in Gehazi's life, because he's been watching this whole thing happen. Let's read it. Gehazi now becomes for us a model of a man who lacks integrity. I want you to see, I want you to see how serious this is. So they had this exchange about the dirt going back and his God in, in the house of Rimen, his God there and. May the Lord pardon your servant. Elisha says, go in peace. Sure, it's a cool plan. Go do it. But when Naaman was gone from him, that's Elisha. We're in verse 19 now of 2 Kings 5. When he was gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after Him and I will get something from Him. The first thing we see in the, in the character flaw, the, the lack of integrity in Gehazi's life, is that he is scheming and self-seeking. A person who lacks integrity will be a schemer and he will be self-seeking. You see, it doesn't say it in the text, but he said, this is what Gehazi said, hmm, hmm. Ah, I got a plan, Stan. It's all going on inside his mind, you see, because people who lack integrity, they don't reveal what's really happening. They are not transparent people. As the Lord lives, he says, and he comes up with his scheme, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, is all well? And he said, oh, all is well. And here's the second thing. We find out that he's a big storyteller. He's a storyteller. He's a liar. Look what it says. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come from me, the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. You got the picture. Elisha had a prophet school. Gehazi serves Elisha at his prophet school. He gets a plan. He's a schemer. He's self-seeking. He's also a storyteller. So he hustles out, chases after Naaman's entourage and chariot. Naaman sees him running, figures out that something's wrong, jumps off his chariot, says, come over here, Gehazi. He recognizes him. He knew he was Elisha's servant. Is there something wrong? Yes. My master sent me to you. There are a couple of old prophets up in the villages, up in the hill country. Their boys are old enough now to come to our prophet school. They just sent two of their sons to our prophet school. We don't have clothes. They're country bumpkins. They're not even dressed adequately. We need, we need a couple of sets of beautiful garments. And how about a talent of silver? I'll give you two talents of silver. It doesn't say it in the text, but Gehazi said, tee, tee, tee this is better than I thought it was going to be. What a plan. I love it when a plan comes together. And so not only is he a storyteller, but we read on and, and we notice then that he's sneaky. Look what he does. So he gives him the two talents of silver. He gives him the multiple sets of clothing, and he urged him, and he tied up, this is uh, verse 23, he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, Here's here's how you can see how sneaky he is. He took them from their hand, and he put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. So evidently, as he approaches the compound where the prophet school is, where Elisha's house is, Gehazi either lives with lives with Elisha, he's his personal servant, or he lives nearby in a servant's quarter. There's evidently a little rise in the land there. He's Here he's got Naaman's servants carrying the bundles of the clothes and the talents of silver. And he realizes if he crests over the top of the rise, uh, lo and behold, that old Elisha, he might be sitting on the porch reading the scrolls, drinking a cup of decaf because it's 430 in the afternoon. And I don't want him to see this thing here. So he stops them before they get over the hill, gets the stuff, sneaks around the hill, goes through the hedges, around the back fence, down through the cellar, steps up through, and puts it in the closet. It doesn't say that, but that's kind of how it happened. He's sneaky. going to sneak it into the room there and hide it. It's his stuff. Remember, he's selfish and self-seeking. He's a storyteller. He's a liar. He's sneaky and sly. Notice how shifty he is. And shady he is now in his language. He came into the hill. He took from their hand, verse 24 again, then put it in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. Here's where the wheels come off his plan. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, moi, me? Your servant has been nowhere. Uh, 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 what do you mean, sir? Uh, uh, I'm here. I'm here. And he tries to act like nothing happened, all sly and slick. Look what happens. He went in and stood before his master. Where have you been? Your servant went nowhere. He lies. He's a storyteller. But he said to him, Elisha says to Gehazi, Did not my heart go, go when the man turned from his chariot to meet with you? Was it a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants? Elisha's pretty upset, and he embellishes what Gehazi did. Do you think this is the time to take olives and animals and property? And I wonder if his voice was rising even... What are you doing, Gehazi? Don't you know that when, I, when you were way out there up the road and he stopped his chariot and began to turn to you, something in my heart told me exactly what you were doing? You know, mess with this man of God. And then he says, Therefore, verse 27, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from the presence of... A, he went out from Elisha's presence, a leper like snow. And we don't even like Gehazi, and you want to stop and just weep for a minute. Not only does he have leprosy the rest of his life, not only has he lost his position of privilege, of being the servant to this mighty man of God, he so there is a curse on you and your children. Why? Because he lacked integrity. Because on the inside, he was something that he was not. On the outside, he wasn't the real deal. Notice the consequences of this man's lack of integrity were catastrophic. Notice the generational curse that was put on his family. Never again did they have a healthy family. Well, we turn to the book of Proverbs now and we've laid a foundation with that long introduction and that amazing story of Elisha and Gehazi and Naaman to illustrate our first point in our outline of spelling out the word integrity using the letters of the word for our points what we're going to do is really just a very simple form of bible study we're just going to look up about 12 verses or so that speak to us about integrity in the book of proverbs let me remind you that this was written now the reason we're in our proverbs series is because it was written by the wisest man who ever lived Not only was it written by the wisest man that ever lived, but it was written by the biggest fool who ever lived. And the reason Solomon didn't end well is because he lacked integrity. He imploded in his moral character house. We need to be reminding ourselves that if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. And let me also remind you that you don't sit here in church today and you don't say, I'm really glad that that guy over there is here today because this is a perfect message for him, man. That's not what we're doing here. We're asking God through the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it to the people of God personally, right? Because we all need God's counsel. what an important area is our personal integrity. Before we begin to look up some verses on it, let's just remind ourselves that a wise person, a wise and godly person, will be characterized by integrity. What is integrity? Let's just define it. And when you look it up in the dictionary, you get words something like this. It is the quality or state of being of sound moral principle. It is the quality or state of being of sound moral principle. It is, has the idea of uprightness, the idea of honesty, the idea of sincerity, the real deal, not a fake, not disingenuous but all the way through the real deal. It's helpful for us if we look at the root word of integrity. The root word is integer. Now, some of you mathematicians out there might remember that word from math class. What is an integer? An integer is a whole number. It's a whole number, not a fraction. It's not a part of a number. It's the whole number. And so that concept is taken over to define the word integrity in its root, something that is whole and complete and solid and not hollow, not fake. It is on the outside what it is on the inside. It's all the way through the real deal. And so it is the idea of whole or untouched or entire. The entire thing is what it's supposed to be. It's the idea of authenticity it's authentic. It's not fake. It doesn't have dynamics or ingredients or parts to it that should not be. It has the idea of completeness, trustworthy. I mean, let's take this into the world of uh, home remodeling. We found an old shack out on 40 acres somewhere and we think it's the greatest house. It ought to be burned by the fire department, but we, we have such a vision for it and we're going to rebuild it. And so it, it's broken windows and just a sight and What do we do? One of the first things we're going to do is we get our flashlight and we go down into the old stone dirt floor cellar and, and we start shining our light. Where are we doing? We're starting at the bottom of that place and we're looking at the stone wall foundation and we're looking at those old hand hewn oak timbers and we get, we get a hand, we start hitting on them and messing with them. And what are we doing? We want to check the soundness of the main beams. Are they the real deal? Are they all the way through iron-hard, ancient, dry, white oak? Or are there pockets inside of puff from carpenter ants? Or wood-boring wasps? Or water has dripped and deteriorated? What is it the real deal all the way through? Or is it... And in the idea of moral soundness for us, are we the real deal? Is it all the way through for real? Are we genuine? Or are there pockets... Forgive my extre- expression, but are there pockets of pus hidden away somewhere, the pus of the disingenuous, sinful part of us? And we present ourselves one way, but in another way, there are these problematic areas. We are not sound. It's not strong. It's not complete. It's, it's not trustworthy. So that's the idea, the quality or state of being s- of sound moral Principle, uh, we could illustrate with names that we know well, couldn't we? The lack of integrity that has brought down lives. Names that go back in the sports world, the name Pete Rose. The entertainment world, Bill Cosby. The political world, Bill Clinton. Lives that were presented to be one way and they're another way. There's pockets of pus that eventually come bubbling out and expose themselves. But that leads us to our study on integrity now. And let's just, simplest form of Bible study, let's just do some rooting around in God's Word here. And and let's use as our outline, as I've done here in your notes, as you can see, just take the word integrity and, and just let us... Launch off of the ideas that come from the letters in the word itself. The first one I want to illustrate to you is eleven three, and that is that it really matters. Integrity really matters. You need to not take this lightly. Proverbs eleven three: the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. You might put in parentheses next to that verse the name Gehazi. But the pathway, the crooked path that this lack of integrity leads down destroyed the life. It's pitiful. And so one of the things we must recognize right away is that that this really matters. There's a couple other words in Proverbs that are used regularly that have really are in the same category of meaning. One is upright or uprightness it's used as a noun and as an adjective. The upright. The person who is above reproach or the uprightness of somebody. The other word that's used often is righteousness or the righteous. That is a righteous man, an upright man. Somebody who lives righteously. And that's who they are. Those are really synonymous with what we're talking about here in the word integrity. In our modern translations, the word integrity is used in different places. Like right here in 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Let your eyes go up to verses 5 and 6. The righteousness, here's the other words that are used. The righteousness of the blameless. There's another word for a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive in their lust. And so the first thing we need to recognize is that it really matters. Uh, Secondly, bouncing off the the letter N, we want to remind ourselves that we have nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide. If you are an upright, righteous person of integrity, then you have no fear in transparency because you have nothing to hide. If you have pockets of sin pus in your life, then you're not transparent because you've got issues. You've got... You've got hidden spots in your life. You've got some little boxes up in the corner closet, and in the box is another box, and in that box is a little bit of sin collection. It's hidden away. Nobody sees it. They don't see it in the living room, the kitchen, the dining room, the garage. No, you know where it is, hidden away. But a person of integrity, they recognize that God sees them. That's Proverbs 15.3. It's a great little verse. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, and he's keeping watch on the evil and the good. Turn to 11.1, and let's remind ourselves what he sees and how accuracy matters to him. Detail matters to God. Proverbs 11.3, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Solomon is recording the reality that God is watching the details of our lives. you got the butcher man in his local shop, and he's got a little lady that can't see high enough on the counter to see the scale, and he's got his finger on the edge of the scale, and he sells her an extra half a pound of ham that's not there because he's holding down on the scale, and he's going to make an extra buck fifty or whatever it is. 750 and there it is but what he forgets is that god sees the meter on his scale he didn't sneak he ripped off the little lady who can't see his scale god sees the details god's eyes are there the person of integrity is ever conscious of the watching eye of the lord and he sees the detail i mean this is a good reminder for in the bathroom in the morning when you wake up and you're on the scale God sees the numbers. You ain't gonna fool nobody. Oh, you might how much do you weigh this morning, honey? Well, I'm about 212, when really it's 219. Well, 219, 212, you know, it goes back and forth a little bit. Liar. Man who lacks integrity. Why does wife always want to know how much man is, huh? Are you losing any weight yet? No, I'm not losing any weight. I've been lifting a lot of weights. I'm heavy right now. (laughs) God sees the numbers. The numbers are right there. That's what he's talking about. You got something to hide? No. Nothing to hide. The person of integrity has nothing. When I was putting this together, I thought about a story. I've shared this story before. Back in in the late 90s, And we were here at fellowship and the church was starting to grow. And Janet and I wanted to move over from Berkeley County to Jefferson County. And we had some land and we wanted to build a house. And so we were sitting around our house one night looking through, you know what you look through, house plan magazines, stacks of them. Stack Janny loved looking through house plan magazines. And I had a little folder and some graph paper. And we were trying to figure out what we wanted. We were working on it one evening. We had a tape measure out. We were measuring our present dining room, our present kitchen, saying, you know, we would like this to be maybe two foot wide. Well, how, big, how big do we need our dining room to be? I want to get a new dining room. We're going to do this and that. What are we going to do? And I thought to myself, we really like Wayne and Carolyn McKenzie's house. Why don't we just go over to Wayne and and Carolyn's and we'll measure the rooms and that way we'll know exactly what a room looks like a certain size. So I called up Wayne and 12 minutes later, we're over at Wayne and Carolyn's. We're walking through their house, measuring open drawers. Look at these drawer slides. These cupboards work like this. We're going all through the house, down to the basement, looking at the joists. We're up in looking at the furnace, the heat, up in the bonus room, opening up the doors and everything. We finish. We have a great night. We got all our information written down. We get in the car to leave and I think that's almost borderline rude, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of call somebody up and go just kind of uh, scrutinize their home. And Wayne and Carolyn, we had a great evening together. If you know anything about Wayne and Carolyn, not only do they have nothing to hide in their home, but everything in their home is in its spot. Nothing's out of order. I thought, what a testimony. Wayne was chairman of our elder board then, and Carolyn. What a testimony of people of integrity that on on an unannounced moment you can go scrutinize their personal world and they've got nothing to hide. There were no hidden sin boxes anywhere. Now, somebody's going to ask to do that to me now. You can do it, but my house isn't clean like that. Janny's space is clean. The basement in the garage. (laughs) What a testimony, huh? Well, let's move on. I want to remind you as, as we continue this in the next few minutes, I also want to remind you, and, it, and it's a weekly reminder, that this wisdom from God that helps us be men and women of integrity is based on the fear of the Lord. Look at 8.13. Integrity and moral Moral soundness is based on the fear of the Lord as well. Look what it says in 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the, and the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate, God says. And so I want to remind you that this whole matter of an awe of God, a reality of the holiness of God, the, the overwhelming, all-encompassing nature of the righteousness of God that is Incredibly intimidating, and if weren't balanced by his love, his mercy, and his grace, we would be consumed by his wrath. That that fear of standing before the ultimate judge is what drives us to a life of integrity. The fear of the Lord is what brings a hatred of evil. He says, "Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate." Next, I want you to see that even the community benefits from men and women of integrity, even the community benefits, 11, 10, we're staying in the region of these few chapters right here most of the time. I hope you appreciate that. Um, even the community benefits, 11, 10, and 11, look what it says. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Listen, when righteous people permeate businesses, when men and women of integrity run the grocery stores and run the post office and run the gas stations and run the mechanic shops, and you're not getting ripped off, men and women of integrity bless the community. In Scripture, it even goes farther than that, in that there are several occasions where God was ready to judge a wicked city or a sinful people group, and he gave a challenge, and he said, if you can just find so many, a handful of righteous people, I will spare my judgment on that group of people. And righteousness preserves, righteousness protects, people and men and women of integrity bring a blessing, even to the broader community. I want you to see then that God delights in the person of integrity. 1120, 1120. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. That's powerful language. You getting that? Those with a crooked heart. Gehazi, you are an abomination to the Lord. But those of blameless ways, look at this, are his delight. Are his delight. I mean, we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? A delight to the Lord. How could God be delighted in someone like me? A man or woman of integrity brings delight to our holy heavenly Father. Isn't that something? That's just a great reality. Once again, let me emphasize, this is not the source of our salvation. It's not some kind of good works that you get good enough that if you have enough integrity and moral soundness that somehow you're good enough to get into heaven. You're not because our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's when we run to the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and Christ Himself takes our sin upon Himself and then by grace through faith we receive the finished work of Christ. We get His righteousness. He gets our sinfulness. He pays the penalty. God is satisfied We get into the family of God. We become part of His church. We're a new creation in Christ. We have newness of mind and the renewing of the mind. And now we care about integrity because we're one of God's children. That's how it works. There's no works here whatsoever for merit before God. It is the result of that great grace of salvation that's at work in me that I care about accuracy on the scale. Well, the community benefits. God delights In men and women, in boys and girls of integrity. I want you to see that righteousness brings confidence and security. Look at 11.3. We've been here already. But I want you to see it from this angle of a confidence and a security that is brought by an integrous life. The integrity of the upright guides them. You know how to make decisions. You live a principled life. You're not just throwing darts at a dartboard. Your integrity guides you. You get into situations and you know what to do because you're going to make the righteous choice. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. It occurred to me too that some people's lives seemingly become destroyed by their integrity. Because they are integrous, people want to destroy them or people create false claims against them. But righteousness brings confidence and security. I want you to see that a righteous person of integrity cares about the truth. Let's begin with 13.5. I care about the truth. If I have integrity, I care about the truth. 13.5. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. 13.5. Let's go to 12.22. You don't even have to turn the page. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. That fits in with God delights in that person. I care about the truth. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. We want to act faithfully, and that brings delight to God. I care about the truth. Now turn to 2010. We're going to have to be there anyway for the next one. Look at 2010. And again, we go back to the scale illustration. Unequal weights and unequal measures, 2010, are both like an abomination to the Lord. Then let your eye go over to 23 from verse 2010 to 2023. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. He repeats himself. You care about the truth because God cares about accuracy. God is a God of truth. God doesn't tolerate lies, falsehoods, Fakeness. I want you to see that there's a generational blessing. There is a generational blessing. Look at 27. Your eyes are right there. The righteous who walks in his integrity. There's our word. The righteous who walks in his integrity. Blessed are his children after him. It's the converse of Gehazi, isn't it? Gehazi had exactly the opposite. Because of his lack of integrity, he brought generational cursing on his children. And when dad is a man of integrity, mm, it makes such a difference. When father lacks integrity in the home, it's very difficult to raise righteous children. Father, you have a huge influence on the moral framework of your children. And you need to know, in this matter of integrity, you can only fake it for so long. We're back at 10.9. We've already read this verse, but now looking at it from this angle... Proverbs 10.9, whoever walks in his integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. You will be found out, Gehazi. You see, pockets of sin pus, they come to a head and they begin to leak. And it's a nasty thing. It's a nasty thing. But integrity preserves Crooked ways will be found out. I want to remind you as we conclude in chapter 4 that integrity is a matter of the heart. Gehazi had a, a divided heart. Gehazi was a poor prophet's servant. He thought he could use a little bit of silver and some new clothes. I wonder where he thought he was going to wear those clothes that Elisha wouldn't see them. Proverbs chapter 4, some really good instruction here, beginning with verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, there's our word, heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Verse 23, our key verse, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, put away from you crooked speech. Don't be a storyteller. Don't be a liar. And put devious talk far from you. Don't be sly and slick. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Crooked paths in Proverbs lead to destruction. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Stay with it. Turn your foot away from evil. Listen, this is all a matter of the heart, isn't it? A divided heart, a devious heart, a heart with lust, a heart that's bitter. What's going on in the inner sanctuary of your moral world, the command center of your life? What's going on in there? Only you know, and God knows. Remember, He sees the scale. He sees the numbers. He sees everything. This matter of the heart, you got any, I use a nasty expression, but any sin pus pockets in there? You're not the real deal all the way through. You're not sound. It's not solid. Sooner or later, it will come out. Examine your heart today. The wise person, the person who has God's blessing, the godly wise person will be a man or woman or boy or girl of integrity. Let the Spirit of God continue to instruct you in this area. Let's stand together and close in prayer, please. Before I pray, I simply want you to just ask yourself if the Spirit of God has been convicting you during the message time about whether you're the real deal all the way through. Are you sound? Are you complete? Are you whole? Or are there pockets that ought not be there that are points of weakness in the I-beam because integrity is lacking? Ask God to help you examine your heart. It's not as easy of a thing as you might think to examine your own heart. We're really, really skilled at telling ourselves things that aren't true. Ask God to help you know your heart. Can you say you've examined your heart, out of it come the issues of life, and you are a man or woman of integrity, a boy or girl of integrity? So, Father, help us. We need help. We want to be the real deal. We want to have the character of Christ. We want to have the, the moral mind of, of a godly person. Our world presses in, tries to redefine what is acceptable and what is good and what is okay, and, and we allow tolerances in. and The next thing you know, we lack integrity. Father, help us to never be like Gehazi. Self-seeking, scheming, storytelling, sneaky, shifty, integrity-lacking people. Convict us and, and show us how to be transparent, godly, sound. All by your grace, all because of your gospel. We know you will help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you as you go. We need to stack our chairs. We need to stack our chairs here. Thank you for your good attention. Somebody tell Children's Zone that the pastor stopped preaching on time.